This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and I am your host, Michael Ware. And let me tell you, I didn't expect it to happen this quickly, but we gave you a little hint in the last episode about who our guests would be sometime in the future, and they are our guests today. And yet you still fund this this war economy and you defund the economy to build roads and infrastructure and education and healthcare and living wage. That's something much more dangerous than just the next election. And we have to get people to see that in order for them to focus on the micro. See, we got to get them to see the macro problem in order for them to focus on the micro election. We are so excited to have on Reverend Dr. William Barber II and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove for this episode. Uh, Reverend William Barber is one of the leaders of the Poor People's Campaign. Jonathan is a a leader in that movement and effort as well. Uh, I'll tell you more about them later in the podcast. But you'll remember just last month, the Poor People's Campaign did something pretty incredible, which is they hosted a cattle call event on poverty with most of the top Democratic candidates. Nine of the Democratic candidates came. And for reasons we'll talk about in the episode, it's pretty unique, pretty rare to to have that that opportunity to hold candidates' feet to the fire, specifically on poverty, specifically on the least of these. And what the Poor People's Campaign has done is it's helped change the incentive structure so that even if the politics might be a little dicey, particularly in the short term, around speaking so explicitly on matters of poverty, uh, these Democratic candidates have to respond to incentives within the primary. Now, we'll talk on this show that, you know, this is a bit of my my personal view. You know, if, if you have other priorities for why you want to see the Democratic Party win, you're kind of upset that they've been so effective. If you don't think talking about poor people, talking about the disenfranchised is that important, then you think it's a risk the Democrats shouldn't take. In the same way that I don't think the Democrats moving so far to the left on issues like abortion, issues like religious freedom, well, not only do I not think it's worth it, I think it's wrong. We have a similar similar situation here where it may cost Democrats to be speaking so explicitly about the poor. I just happen to think it's a it's a good risk to take. I, I want to be a part of a party that is using its political power to speak to and to help and address issues of poverty. And so in that way, I'm grateful for uh, the work Reverend Barber and Jonathan and all those involved in the Poor People's Campaign uh, are doing to the extent that they're centering poverty. Now, they have all kinds of prescriptions. Uh, Reverend Barber will talk about their five focus areas. And within those areas, there's ample room for policy disagreement. But the important thing, or at least one of the important things, is that we're having the conversation. And that particularly in this Democratic primary, that we don't have candidates who are able to skate by without addressing the poor, without laying out a plan for how they will address poverty, and letting voters have their say on it. And so I'm excited about this conversation. We're, we're not going to spend too much time in this episode, really no time at all, going through recent news. It's still so early. I mean, look, the fundraising numbers came out. Buttigieg just crushed it. Harris clearly needed a strong debate performance because her fundraising numbers, well, not bad. She met her first quarter numbers. They're, they're just not blowing anyone out of the water. And so, you know, those are the fundraising numbers. Sanders raised, I believe, about 19 million. Buttigieg did raise 24, which is, you know, impressive in the context of this primary, though it should be noted. 
I mean, again, we're going to be talking a lot about Democrats in these early months of this podcast, primarily because that's where most of the action is. It's really important not to lose sight of what Republicans are doing. The RNC is raising money hand over fists, including for the first time of raising more donations, I believe under $200 than uh, the Democrats. Uh, and so their small dollar donations are moving up. Trump is going to have a big treasure chest. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I think folks are eager to see this Democratic primary, see some candidates drop out. And the reason for that is that money will go elsewhere. At least that's the hope, that the sooner we get this thing narrowed down, the sooner we'll have four to five candidates raising money from a very similar pool of donors as opposed to having 20, 25, 26. One other piece of news is someone who won't need to raise a whole lot of money is Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer is billionaire activist, been focusing quite a bit on the environment, has also been building up a political operation of his own. You might recognize him from those direct-to-camera commercials where he gives his his opinion on, on, on issues, usually during breaks on CNN. But he announced he's jumping in on Tuesday. So Eric Swalwell is out, thank goodness. But, <laughs> you know, we can't even say that the field is narrowing because we got Tom Steyer just in to replace him. Tom has been thinking about this for a while. He, he definitely has resources to make waves. I, I think what's going to be interesting to hear from him is just what was not being said or done among 25 odd candidates that he thinks you know, he'll be able to get done. I wonder how explicitly he's just going to make the case. Look, these candidates are not raising enough money and I'm going to be limited in how much I can give to these candidates. And so I'm, you know, we need a candidate who can self fund their campaign and go toe to toe with Trump, who in 2016 ended up using a sophisticated debt operation, you know, pretty effectively. All right. That's all the news we're going to. I know there's a lot to discuss. Buddha judges issues in South Bend, the Harris Biden squabble. You know, Biden has dropped a bit in the polls, but is still a clear front runner. Harris has surged. Uh, some polls have her in a clear second. There's a new tracking poll out Tuesday of this week that shows Sanders still in second. But, but Harris is, is definitely now reasserted herself clearly in the top tier of candidates. And so these dynamics are all very interesting. Uh, also, you know, Biden had a big week in South Carolina. We actually talk about many of these issues on the Church Politics Podcast, which is the AND Campaign's sort of signature staple podcast. Uh, I co-host it with AND Campaign's President Justin Gibney. And every week on that podcast, it's an opinion-driven podcast where we look at news of the day, not just 2020, political news of the day, and sometimes some cultural news, especially when it intersects with faith, uh, through the lens of faith. And so if you're looking for more opinion. If you want sort of a, a podcast that will help you sort through politics and general news and figure out what you think in a more sort of guided way, I'd really advise you check out the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, it's a weekly podcast. I, I think you'll dig it. One note I want to have before we move further into these interviews and into these episodes, and this has been mentioned before, but this podcast is not opinion-driven. There will be segments and moments where I will explicitly sort of tell you my opinion on a matter, like I just did maybe five minutes ago. But this is primarily about bringing to you the key players in 2020 and making sure that you can see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. And sometimes the story that's being told is not going to be one that fits my sort of ideological proclivities. Like it's not going to be, sometimes I'm not going to like the way faith is being used on the campaign trail, but it's important that you understand it. It's important that you know why campaigns are doing what they do. And some of the guests that we have on, actually all of the guests we have on, I'm probably going to disagree with in some way. The point of this show is not to debate every point with guests. I want by the time that we get to January and February and, and the first votes in this primary, I want you to have a, a pretty holistic, well-rounded view of all of the factors and all of the ways that faith is influencing this primary. 
And so I want to bring to you people and perspectives that are different from my own, but that as someone who has led faith outreach for a presidential campaign and been in politics for a long time, I know they matter. And, you know, these guests are a couple good examples of that. People who are really driving the conversation in ways that I think are important. There are some differences, but I'm not interested in centering those differences. I'm interested in, in you hearing from Reverend Barber, hearing from Jonathan, maybe learning a thing or two. I certainly learned a thing or two uh, about how they they view things, about how they operate, about how they assess sort of the moral state of our politics. And I, I think you'll really enjoy it. The last comment I'll have is, again, this is a bi-weekly podcast at this point. I sort of have in mind that we will move to a weekly or even more regular episode schedule as we get into December, January, February. Once votes are taking place, we won't sort of uh, get too far down that road. But for now, it's bi-weekly. Your feedback is going to really inform what the schedule looks like moving forward. And so we love hearing from you on what we're talking about, what guests you want to have on, what you think about the podcast, how we can make it better. And you could do that by just reaching out to me on Twitter, Michael R. Ware, and by leaving an iTunes review, especially if you like the show. Uh, uh, just kidding, though, not really. <laughs> no, really, leave a review on iTunes that helps other listeners to find us and really allows us to hear from you about what what you like about the show. And so we could double down on those things. All right. I mentioned this in the last episode. If you're starving for content in between these bi-weekly episodes, I just urge you to check out my Substack, and that's at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Multiple times every week, uh, we're curating and providing exclusive analysis on Faith 2020 politics in what I think is a really helpful way. I, I love doing the Substack. It allows me to write in a really open way, test out some ideas, and really pull together what I think is the sort of essential news and analysis that will, on a more regular basis, help you sort out what's going on in our politics. That's all the house cleaning I have to do. When we get back, I'm going to introduce our guests, and we're going to get into this conversation. So glad to have you with us. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. We have two really incredible guests. The Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II is the president and senior lecturer of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. He is a senior pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church and the author of three books, Revive Us Again, Vision and Action in Moral Organizing, The Third Reconstruction, Moral Mondays, Fusion Politics, and the Rise of a New Justice Movement, and Forward Together, a Moral Message for the Nation. He's a highly sought-after speaker. Reverend Dr. Barber has given keynote addresses at hundreds of national state conferences, including the 2016 Democratic National Convention. He currently sits on the National NAACP Board of Directors. He's a former Mel King Fellow at MIT, visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary, a senior fellow at Auburn Seminary, and then he's also a 2018 MacArthur Genius Fellow, uh, which is you know quite a quite a title and quite an accomplishment. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is a writer, preacher, and moral activist. He and his wife Leah founded the Ruppa House of Hospitality in Durham, North Carolina. Jonathan directs the School for Conversion, a popular education center in Durham, committed to making surprising friendships possible. And he's an associate minister at St. John's Missionary Baptist Church. Jonathan is the author or co-author of more than a dozen books. His forthcoming book, Revolution of Values, is about the movement to reclaim values in public life from the distortions of the culture wars. I'm excited to share this conversation and we'll get right to it. Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove here on the Faith 2020 Podcast. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast and I am honored to have uh, with us as a guest for this episode, uh, the Reverend Dr. William Barber. Uh, and uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for, for joining us. Good to be with you. 
Glad to be with you today. Absolutely. Well, I, I just want to jump right in. Last month, you all, in partnership with your your community at the Poor People's Campaign, pulled off something that was that was pretty extraordinary, which is a convening that that drew uh, many of the top Democratic presidential contenders to D.C. for a forum speaking explicitly about poverty. And so so the first question I want to want to ask is, you know, what were your main takeaways from that forum? What did you get out of it and what do you think uh, the folks that you represent uh, heard from the Democratic presidential candidates? Well, first of all, let me thank you for having us on. I I would say about the Poor People's Campaign, uh, what we call the Poor People's Campaign Moral Action Congress which is a part of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and I co-chair with Reverend Dr. Leah Steele Harris. The Congress was another step in our launching of the campaign that happened in 2017 when we first went to more than 30 states to engage in what we called MVM Polis, the Moral Political Organizing Leadership Institute and Summit with religious leaders, uh, people of faith, uh, impacted people, and people not of faith, but people who believe in the Marlocker universe uh, and advocates to train a core group of people to launch this campaign. And then after that, we developed an audit, the Souls of Poor Folk Audit, because we wanted to really look at what was the state of, of affairs in five distinct areas, systemic racism, policy racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and uh, militarism, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. And when that audit came back, uh, we saw the interconnection, what we call interlocking injustices. Uh, you know, we saw through the prism of systemic racism, voter suppression, and gerrymandering, and then we were able to connect in every state that was a voter suppression state uh, where people use racism to split and, and deny and drain and, and diminish the black vote. The people who got elected by those tactics, once they got in office, they passed policies that hurt the poor and the sick and in raw numbers actually hurt more white people. Million low wealth, poor and low wealth people, uh, which is uh, 39 million children, 21 million elders, 65 million men, 74 million women, 26 million black people, 38 million Latinx, 8 million Asian, 2.14 million Native, 66 million white people. Uh, and then, and that's just the raw numbers, not the percentage. So then after we left that, we then had six weeks of action from Mother's Day to uh, the, the summer soldiers to launch the campaign. Six weeks of, of activism in 41 states, the District of Columbia, Thousands of people were arrested, delivering our demands under those five areas to state capitals and the United States Congress. And then we did some hearings across the country where we asked politicians to come and listen. In fact, we did a hearing during the six weeks uh, in, in 2018, but it was only Democrats came because uh, the Republicans wouldn't respond. And at that time, we had four members who are now running for president at those hearings. And they were visibly moved when we put poor and impacted people in front of them with these facts. And then lastly, we had a bus tour at 93 stops in 30 states. And then we launched, we, we, said we, we uh, developed the Poor People's uh, Moral Justice Budget. And so the Congress was kind of coming together. The most important thing that happened was over a thousand people from 40, almost 45 states came plus denominational leaders, religious leaders of, of different faith traditions and advocates. It had never happened before a Poor People's Moral Congress. And the first day we have nine, we had 10, one couldn't make it, Peter, the mayor couldn't make it. Ten presidential candidates saw this, what has been happening across the country, saw the narrative shift happening, saw us building power among black, brown, red, yellow, you know, gay, straight, young, old, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. And they said, we need to be there. And knew when they came, it wouldn't be the normal thing of them coming and speaking and leaving. They get four minutes to speak, and then they have to answer questions for 23 minutes from impacted people and from 
us raising questions on behalf. That was his story. And it was live streamed on MSNBC and whatnot. Now, after having seeing it happen, and then we had a hearing on Congress on Wednesday, which we'll talk about later. But what I am concerned about is it was good to have them there. A number of them said on camera, in fact, all of them, that, that, that we needed to have at least one national debate that would focus on the issues of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and and, and religious nationalism, as, and how they're connected. They all said that on camera. Uh, you should know we invited the president. We invited the candidates right on the Republican side. They didn't come. What I'm concerned about, though, even, even after them coming, I'm so thankful they came, is it let us know we have a lot of work to do because, because some of them still didn't grasp 140 million poor and low wealth people. Some of them still talk in those terms where when they talk poverty, they go to the government number on poverty and they still kind of talk in racialized terms because they, you know they think about the fact that 60% of say black people are in poverty and low wealth, but that 60% is 26 million among white people is 35%, but it's 66 million. And lastly, they, they all, I think, were kind of still repeating their talking points. And I've been a little sad afterwards to hear people now talking about middle class, middle class, middle class, and the very thing we were trying to say to them, and that many of them said that day is that we cannot just have a middle class conversation in this country. We got to talk about the poor and the low wealth, and we have to talk about these from not the left and the right, Republican versus Democrat, but from our deepest moral values and moral critique. It's maybe difficult for folks who haven't paid attention to this this thread in presidential politics too closely, but it, it was really unusual and it required a shift in the incentive structure to even get these candidates to an event like yours. I mean, as someone who's been involved in presidential campaigns and, and politics, that the answer, well, there, there, there have really been two responses to why we can't talk about the poor explicitly in politics. The first would be, uh, some would argue that, uh, those who are poor don't like to think of themselves or or don't think of themselves as poor and so uh you're you're not even speaking to them that's been sort of one political response the the the, the other one has been uh that it's a major source of of weakness so you know democratic strategists would say look we're the party that's you know better for the poor but if we talk about it explicitly we won't be able to win elections uh, what was so amazing to me being in those rooms before is, you know, I, I understood that you've injected something and the Poor People's Campaign has injected something into the bloodstream that even if those factors haven't changed, even if, you know, in a general election, talking about the poor requires some kind of political cost or sacrifice, these candidates still decided to show up. Uh, what does that say to you about the power of organizing and, and frankly, the power of people of faith and others being willing to speak to political parties uh, in a way that challenges them, not just one that kind of puffs them up. Well, it, it says certainly that the poor and the low wealth, people of faith, people not of faith, but who have a deep moral consciousness, we have to work on three things that we've committed to in this campaign. First, change the narrative, which means you cannot get in the public square to raise the issue of poverty and low wealth and just use the same talking points and the same tribalism and the same puny language that the politicians already use. That's not going to work. Number two, you have to build from the bottom up, not from the top down. Too many of our politicians, they just listen at their posters. And I'm not saying posters are bad, but posters only poll what they poll. And so if they haven't been with the movement on the ground, they haven't traveled. Many times that's not even in their atmosphere, in their, in their critique. And so what we bring to the table is a movement. Not just folks speaking on behalf of people, but with poor and impacted people mixed all in together, speaking on their own behalf, believing in agency and the power of poor people. Thirdly, you must have a, you must do your work. You must do a audit of, of so that you, if you're loud, you're, you're not wrong. I like to say you must be very clear. You must be very persistent. Uh, you must be clear to them. You're not in anybody's camp 
per se. And then, then sec, third, lastly, you have to answer the questions up front. So we know the question about scarcity is coming up. So what do we do? We commissioned an audit. Some of the best economists, the best think tank to say, no, scarcity is a lie. Here are the footnotes. We can't find the money. Yes, the money is here. We know how to find it. We know where it is. Here's a budget that can show you where it is. And in fact, the budget that we put together would help everybody. It would lift the community. In fact, it makes more sense than the waste we're doing now and the waste we're doing in militarism, the waste we're doing in tax cuts for the wealthy. And then I said last year, but then the other thing is you have to build it intersectional. It has to be deep. It has to be broad. So you have to be able to bring people in from from East Kentucky and and the Delta of Mississippi. And what I saw, a lot of those candidates, they knew me. And when they walked on stage, the first thing it did was they were in a little bit of a shock. <laughs> when they looked out of that audience, they said, oh, wait, wait, wait. Um, this is this is a different, you know, because what they saw was the fullness of America. Right. They did not fit their normal way of talking about uh, these issues and poverty. And, and, and then you're right. Both parties have have, you know, it's not equal because the extremist Republicans have tended to just be the poor if they were just more moral and so forth and so on. And all we have to give tax to the wealth. But on the other hand, Democrats, too, have, have tended to buy into neoliberalism, talk just about the middle class. For the last 50 years, we basically eradicated the conversation about the poor and, and systemic racism from major conversations within the public dialogue. And to see this campaign be able to reinsert it with the power that we're reinserting, it, it's, it's very, very hopeful, I believe, for the nation. Because I think, and Jonathan may agree, that the 140 million poor people and low-wealth people in this country and the 100 million people that stayed home in 2016, and many of them being poor and low-wealth, and uh, in fact, the hope for this nation. And if we go through another presidential election like we did last time, but we have 26 presidential debates and not one on systemic <laughs> racism and not one on poverty and low wealth, we're only setting a foundation for Trump to win all over again. Sure. J- Jonathan, let me, let me ask you, uh, how central do you believe faith is to the poor people's campaign and the movement y'all are building? Is it, is it coincidental that you're clergy or is the religious nature of your message and organizing integral to the, to the cause understanding that there are non-believers and and people of different faiths that are a part of the movement, but, but uh, uh, you know, how, how core is faith to what you're doing or, or is this just a a movement led by clergy that um, you you know, is uh, you know, has a, has a broader approach. Well, the analysis that Reverend Barber has just offered is one that's deeply rooted in the history of moral movements in this country. So the Poor People's Campaign is in this moment, but we're drawing on what we've learned through history from moral leaders, people of deep faith who have had a capacity to prophetically critique whoever has been in power in this country. And that has always been about lifting up the voices of those people who are marginalized. Uh, Now, in the current, you know, political climate, there's lots of negotiations going on about, you know, uh, should Democrats reach out to people of faith? How should they reach out? These sort of questions. Uh, And there's a recognition, of course, that uh, Republicans through the religious right have had a very robust um, attempt to reach out to people of faith. But this isn't just about a kind of appeal to people who have faith sort of for the purpose of reaching some established political goal. It's really about reaching deep into faith traditions and into the moral traditions of this country to say, you know, what are our real values? And as a matter of fact, when you do that with you know, the 140 million people who've been pushed to the side in the society, you you can recognize that we have in common, you know, uh, values that say we should have equal opportunity, that we should have access to health care, to good education, to uh, jobs that pay a living wage. These are these are values that we share across many different faith traditions. And but I think the, the fact that uh, we're rooted in our faith traditions is central to what we're doing. And for the way, may I just say on that question as well? I like to say it's not led by clergy. It is a movement led with the poor. So it's every every coordinating committee has to have an impacted person at one of the tri chair, a person of faith, and an advocate. 
And the way we embrace everybody is we don't say you want to be Christian. We say, here are the deep religious values that have been operative in our society for a long time. When you look at, when you look at the abolition movement, it was deep, people were deeply rooted in their faith that this, this is ungodly. This slavery is evil. This, it, it is unjust. It is contrary to the values of love and justice and mercy. During the Reconstruction movement, when black and white clergy came together with others to reconstruct the South, they often framed their policy saying that, that these policies that we now need to pass, whether it's the 14th Amendment equal protection under the law or the 15th Amendment, to not do these things would be contrary to our deepest religious values and our deepest constitutional values, which require the establishment of justice and the promoting of the general welfare. You wouldn't have any of the progressive things we hold dear today, child labor laws, a, a, minimum, a basic minimum wage, even though it's not a living wage, we're fighting to change it, uh, cons- help, uh, social security, all of those things, even though sometimes they were tainted with racism, but underneath there was the social gospel movement. There was Francis Perkins in the, in the Roosevelt uh, administration who was a social gospeler who pushed him on the New Deal. It was the clergy who stood up against the spiritual mobilization of, of Finefield out of California that worked with the Chamber of Commerce and big business to try to undermine labor unions and undermine the New Deal and undermine minimum wage. It was, you know, deeply a part of the civil rights movement. the Chavez was a person of deep faith and the people that marched with him were people of deep faith. So you cannot find any form for foundational, transformational progress in this country that a part of it somewhere in there was not a moral remnant, if you will, through it. I'm saying everybody may not do this work, but somebody has to do this work. And this work is never limited to just one issue. It's never limited to just one issue, which is why when we say, when we look at our deepest religious values, whether they be Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Sikh, or we look at our deepest constitutional values, Establishing justice, providing for the common defense, promoting the general welfare, and ensuring domestic tranquility. Either one of those areas or both of them combined requires that you address systemic racism, policy racism, requires that you address systemic uh, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism that basically says if you're for prayer in the school, you're against gay people, you're against women's right to choose, your four guns and tax cuts. And somehow that's this great grand uh, godly position when in fact it's a form of theological malpractice. And this is not about a religious left versus religious right. That's actually the wrong terminology. And I, and we're going to write a piece challenging some of the politicians that are now talking in those terms where they're saying, oh, do you need the religious left to come out? No, it's not about the religious left and the religious right. It's about the moral center and our deepest religious values. It's not two equal places uh, that, that have equal moral standing. You do not say that people who 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 promote policy hatred and violence against gay people and against uh, uh, against immigrants and against women are somehow the religious left counter to the religious right. What they're doing is irreligious. You there's no scriptural foundation to to uphold that. And and for those who claim to be Christian, there's no place in scripture where they see Jesus doing that. <laughs> That's right. And at the same time, we know that that way of using religion has also always been here, right? That's this right. distorted moral narrative also has a long history. So we're looking back and learning from the fact that there was a slaveholder religion that, you know, said God blessed owning other people. There was a, you know, religion that propped up uh, corporations and capitalism in mid 20th century that, you know, pushed against labor movements. There was a, a kind of religion in the civil rights movement that said, you know, don't, don't get involved in politics in that way. Stick to the gospel as this sort of narrow thing that doesn't have anything to do with whether there's equality. So we're, yeah, we're trying to offer a, an alternative to that in this moment as well. And it wasn't just white job. Dr. King would put out his own denomination. That's right. His own church, some of his church members at Dexter wanted him gone. So this is not some, it's not just an easy either or. This is serious, serious in-depth analysis, what we call moral analysis, moral articulation, and moral activism. Because what we're interested in, not just the next election, but the very heart and soul of this yeah. country. I, I want to I follow up on that, which is, uh, 
you know, I've, I've heard you say, Reverend Barber, uh, and, and in fact, you, you just said it, that uh, the, the work you're involved in is not about uh, sort of a, a left or right, but a, as a, the moral center. You're still viewed as progressive politically. And so my, my question is, are, are there any views that you hold that line up more with conservatives? And, and if so, you know, wh- what are they? Well, see, I just don't use that language because I am a conservative. <laughs> see, if, if, if I'm fighting to, 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 to address the issues, let's say, of poverty and low yeah. yeah, then I'm trying to conserve what, where Jesus started and liberally spread it everywhere. A conservative means to hold on to. That's what it means. It means to hold on to, in essence. So if Jesus, me being a Christian, if Jesus started his ministry preaching good news to the poor, the patokos, P-T-H-O-S, which means those who have been made poor by economic uh, 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 exploitation, which put Jesus in direct and directly challenging Caesar and uh, and and the religion of the Pharisees and the religion of Caesar that cared more about the wealthy and the greedy than the poor and the needy. It, how am I going to say I'm a biblicist? How am I going to say I'm a conservative if I don't start where Jesus started? Mm. And, and and if I'm and if I want to conserve what Jesus started, he said, "Evangel, good news to spread, to spread." So I should be spreading. And conservatively holding on, refusing to give up. So I'm refusing as a conservative to say faith should not have a role in the, where we, how we treat the poor. Jesus said, Jesus said nations would be judged by how you treat the poor and the immigrant. So how am I claiming to be a conservative biblicist, Christian, and I see immigrants being mistreated and I'm quiet? That's not being conservative. Uh, that's actually uh, 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 walking away from faith, and then and what we used to say, saying more about what God says so little, and saying so little about what God says so much, which is actually the the contrary of being conservative. So far, part of this work is we got to take these terms back, snap these terms back, and stop using terms that were designed to to uh, to to separate us and to confuse. You know, Michael, there are Republicans who recognize this. For example, the attack on the Affordable Care Act in the South hurt a lot of rural communities. And there was a Republican in the community where a, a rural hospital was closed, who, a Republican mayor who started uh, fighting for the hospital. And uh, in the course of that, a friend of ours went down to walk with him from that hospital to D.C., and when they were walking, this Republican mayor looks at our friend and he says, I just don't understand, Bob, why you're with me. You're you're a flaming liberal. And Bob looked at him and said, Bob, he said, he said, uh, Adam, I'm not a liberal. I'm a radical. <laughs> you know, we're trying to get at the heart of what's right here. We're not we're trying to get beyond this left right mess that is leaving so many people high and dry. And, you, and, and, and Michael, you never heard the abolitionists say they were on the left or right. You never heard the social gospel movement say they were on the left or the right. You never heard uh, King say that he was on the left or the right, or or, or Rabbi Heschel, or Dorothy Day, or or or, or, or Mary McLeod Bethune, or Francis Perkins. Well, I have a friend of mine named Jay Cameron Carter. He's a PhD. He's yeah, a PhD. I know, I know him. Okay, Jay Cameron yeah. and I were working on an article last week. Working on, it. we were talking. I was at the Bonhoeffer lectures in Chicago. I was doing them. And he said to me this, and it is it is something we need to hear. He said the language of left and right is a compromise within the power system as and an agreement not to use moral language. Left hmm. and right is actually a, a, a compromise they made somewhere to, to, to have political conversations that kind of give each one a certain level of, 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 of equality when they're not equal. And he said in every movement, that has ever transformed America did not use the language of politics to do it. So there are some things we're trying to delegitimize with this movement. We're trying to delegitimize inequality. We're trying to delegitimize, you know, concentration camps where you can put people just because you've demonized them. I I think that's central to what this moral movement is about. Yeah. You know, so right. Donald Trump is going to try and equalize 
all this out for his swath of religious voters by saying, you know, look, they, they talk about uh, the morality of what's happening on the border. They talk about, uh, you know, the way I talk and say it's immoral. Uh, but look at how the Democrats are moving to the left on an issue like abortion. They can't even say that there's a restriction that they could even imagine that they'd want to place. And so uh, it, well, it, does that concern, does that concern you at all? And, uh, you, you know, it, uh, you, you mentioned a sort of, uh, uh, talking, uh, uh, only a little about what Jesus talked a lot of and talking yeah. much of what yeah. Jesus talked a little of that that's typically, you know, referring to ri- sort of the religious rights, you know, one or two social issues. What I'm trying to understand is, um, is do you feel like the religious, uh, do you feel like the pro-life movement gets the abortion issue wrong or do you think it just takes up too much space in our political discourse? Well, this is how we would talk. Let me give, let me talk about it in three quick ways. Number one, we have to remember that Trump is a symptom of the problem. He's not the problem. He's the symptom. Uh, there's a professor at Princeton University that said Trump is the iconography of a too often repeated American experience. You know, and, 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 and we have to understand that his representation of politics is not new. As, as Kenby says in his book, Stamp from the Beginning, you always have them running side by side. It's kind of racist retrogression and racist progress and and, and class retrogression and class probably running side by side. And Trump, uh, you know, moved, walked into that, knew there was an opening because of reaction to Obama. But he also got in, I believe, in many ways because of Democrats' unwillingness to not just be Democrats, but be statesmen and statesmen. And, 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 and when you have this kind of puny discussion that we saw in 26 with these debates, and as I said, you leave out 140. Think about it. You live like 140 million people, 43.5% of the country living in poverty and low wealth. You don't have any debates around that. You open, you give him clear way. We, we have, we'd have less voting rights than we had 50 years ago after the Shelby decision and not one full hour debate on racism in terms of, in terms of, of voting suppression, uh, mistreatment of immigrants, uh, how we're mistreating the Native American, Native community resegregation of public schools and mass concentration. So when you have a dumbed-down, devolved, rather than evolved political discussion, you actually open it up for a narcissistic kind of, 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 of demagogue, if you will, to, 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 run, to, to step in. So what I'm saying, number two, is that what Democrats or whoever, let's stop talking about the formal, even Democrats and Republicans. I, I, I've been in politics. All, I've been in politics. I worked for a governor who was the only governor to win uh, 16 years in the South. So I know about that side of politics. And one of the things I know is you can't beat somebody else at their own game. And you have to change the narrative even in politics. So if, if we're saying the poor people's campaign, these five issues, it would do well for Democrats to grab these issues, not singularly, but interconnectedly talk about them Lay out how they're going to 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 change them, and if they start doing that, the media will follow them into it. the media will follow them. They've got to lead the media into the real issues, or they led into the craziness by Trump. So if they go right back to just talking about the middle class and not talking about the 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country, they do it to their own political demise because they're going right back. To him, and then they allow kind of an, these empty spaces. Or if they allow him to talk about, let's say, the women's rights piece, and they don't point out, okay, okay, you want to talk about denying women women the right to 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 an abortion? Number one, let's look at the real numbers on that in those states. Number two, let's look at the fact. Let's help society see that the same people who block the vote are the same people who deny women's right to vote are the same people who deny you your living wage. In other words, don't let them isolate an issue. In other words, what we used to call triangulate them and show people the connections that the same people over here that are telling you, I love the Lord and we should be against women's right to choose against gay people. Those same people are taking your health care. Those same people are letting your communities be impoverished. People can get it if we help them understand and we don't just play this one issue uh, kind of politics that allows for these gotcha moments. 
rather than have a deep, serious, moral conversation about where we are in this nation and where we could be if we dare to go forward together. Sure. Just a couple more questions. And second, last question I'll I'll put to you, Jonathan, which is, you know, what would you say to young people in particular who care about justice, care about the poor, but just believe our politics is so broken that those in power are so entrenched that it, it just doesn't justify spending time being involved in the political process? Well, there are a lot of people like that. And I'm encouraged that many of them are joining the Poor People's Campaign because the this is a real moment of politicization, I think, in this country for many people of faith who've, uh, who've stepped aside and have realized that, as a matter of fact, if you cede power to extremists, then things get worse. And the only way to change a system is to build power, not for yourself, but for all those people who've been marginalized. And that's what a, a fusion movement is about, uh, connecting all of the people who've been pushed aside by this uh, distorted narrative and coming together to to claim power and build power for the people who've been excluded. I so agree with that. I think that's so important that when you withdraw from politics, when you withdraw from the public, you're actually ceding over uh, the very the, the territory to the very people that are running you out in the first place and that you think are are so destructive. And, and they hope for that, Michael. They see, see and then and then they create another false narrative. We won. Okay. Eighty thousand votes in three states. One state claim you won in Wisconsin, there were two hundred fifty thousand votes suppressed. You win by thirty thousand votes. In Michigan you win by ten thousand votes, but there are hundred thousand votes uh, that of African Americans alone. Then in the South, you claim you won, but in the South, red, their states are not red states, they're unorganized states. If you register 30% of the unregistered African-American voters in the South and connect them with progressive whites and progressive uh, and Latinos, you know about five states from Georgia to North Carolina, Florida, Texas, Mississippi, uh, Virginia, change automatically, and many others. So we, so, but if you leave 100 million people on, on you know, that are already registered who don't vote, because you're trying to create some democratic blue wall <laughs> and you you don't want to run everywhere you, you don't want to go everywhere and, and bring people together then you get what we have you get a kind of lavish democracy but if you dare to show people the truth if you dare to go to the south for instance and show people your state denied health care did you know North in North Carolina 500,000 people are denied health care but 346,000 of them are white and the same people that passed the worst voter suppression laws we've seen since Jim Crow, they're the ones that are doing this. I, you know, Michael, last people, as Jonathan, moral fusion has power because we've seen it historically. And every time it has happened historically, there's been change and transformation. And it's been change and transformation on the social issues that before moral fusion, people said it was impossible and it couldn't be done. You know, most of the things that we have today, 100 years ago, people said it was impossible to do. Impossible to do. The politics didn't say it. The polling didn't say it. But people then decided, no, I have to fight for this. And I just believe, I, I just believe that if if you ignore 43.5%, I can't say it enough, of this country, no democracy can ultimately survive that kind of weakness in its foundation. You, I mean, bigger, this, this bigger than just 2020 election, even though I'm clear about 2020 election and we have to debate. But just that fact, 43.5%, if you have a nation where you're spending $700 plus billion on militarism, you know, six, almost 53 cents of air discretionary dollar, on militarism. And if you cut that in half to 350, you still would have more militarism and military power than China, North Korea, Japan, and Russia and Iran combined. And yet you still fund this, this war economy and you defund the economy to build roads and infrastructure and education and healthcare and living wages. That's something much more dangerous than just the next election. And we have to get people to see that in order for them to focus on the micro. See, we got to get them to see the macro problem in order for them to focus on the micro election. 
because then they won't just come to the poll just against Trump as a person. They will come and vote because of their principle, because their moral values, and because they want something greater and better for this country. The, the last question, Reverend Barber, I'll, I'll never forget watching you speak at the 2016 Democratic Convention, which, you know, b- by the way, I hope we've now solidified that there should always be a primetime slot for a religious leader at the Democratic Convention after your talk in 2016 and Sister Simone Campbell, who I know is a friend of us all in 2012. You know, two, uh, those were two of the most uh, uh, two of the most appreciated convention addresses at those conventions uh, but 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 that that's an aside. Uh, what I want to ask you about is that at that convention, you spoke about the need for a moral defibrillator. You spoke about the spiritual brokenness that lies at the center of and underneath our political dysfunction. At least that's how how I read your talk. Uh, three years later, what does it look like in your view uh, for folks to be the moral defibrillators that our nation needs? Well, you know, uh, Nina Simone said it's not the waking, it's the rising. We spent a couple of years waking people up, and now they're rising. And they are becoming the defibrillators. You know, when I see what's happening in the Poor People's Campaign, when I see the way in which people are saying, we're going to put faces on the facts, when I see the way in which people are engaging across this country, when I feel now this enthusiasm that we're seeing a few weeks ago, we made a call to go to the White House with religious leaders and say, you know, it's not the Mueller report, but it's the report of the law. It's the report of our deepest religious values that, that, that say this, this administration and the enablers are under a kind of moral indictment, moral impeachment. We sent out the call and clergy that feel two city blocks turned out of every different faith and, and religion, creed, color, and sexuality. When we announced that we're going to go do a tour from September to next June, uh, every other week in the state, 18 stops across this country, you know, we can hardly uh, get the 18 plan. People want even more. We, we now have these 41 units that are deep dive training a thousand people and then connecting them to 30,000 people via all of the tools we have in social media, which means we'll have over a million people connected to this campaign. You know, by not not too long from now, when I we announced that we were going to have a mass poor people's assembly and moral march on um, Washington next year, on June 2020, 20th, 2020, right after the primary, just before the convention, to to drive these five issues and the solution into the moral into the moral narrative of the nation, and to build a stage that's not going to be featuring people speaking for people but poor and impact the people from the 50 states speaking for themselves. Uh, when, when I see the large number of people, you know, uh, we, we got a group now ready to go to the border of clergy and other people calling on Congress people on the 20th and 29th of July, uh, saying that it's time for us now to engage in nonviolent direct action. Uh, and, the, and people are just saying, yes, I did a sermon. What does, the 4th of July means that immigrants and people of color and, and it's past 100,000 people of youth that now understand and continuing to grow. There is this hunger. People have a sense that if we don't address these five interlocking injustices, Dr. King warned us about addressing three and, and, and we never do it if we drop. But people are clear that these five interlocking injustices, not to address them, address them, not to have them as the center of debate, opening us, to, uh, us up to charlatans, you know, being in our political um, leadership, or it, it leaves us with people who will just do implement, uh, in, uh, not implement who will do um, uh, in, in, incremental change and not the kind of moral revolutionary change that we really need, you know, in this country. So I'm hopeful. Now, my hope does not go, is not is not mere optimism. There's a lot of pain out here. There's food and pornographic sums of money being spent against movement and against the kind of thing happening. You know, the, the evil is real. The hate is real. People are hurting. You know, there's far too, too little outcry for people being in cages. If, you know, if those were wealthy white or black children, the nation would be in an uproar. But, but for so long, we've allowed people to demonize you know, uh, so-called undocumented immigrants. 
two really are not immigrants because the border, we didn't, the, the immigrants from Mexico didn't cross the border. The border crossed them. They're coming back to their own home. We forget all that history. California, New Mexico, Texas is Mexico, was Mexico. We snatched it from them because of people wanting to keep their slaves because Mexico was anti-slavery. And that hurts America, this kind of social historical amnesia. And yet in the midst of it, I see a remnant. You know, I come from a tradition that learns to see good news in the graveyard. You know, I come from a tradition that believes that when nobody else, when the politicians are acting like wolves, as Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 22, and the preachers are covering up for the wolf-like behavior of the politician, then the prophets go to the valley. And that's where hope comes up. Hope comes out of the valley. The people who look like they're so beaten down, so destroyed that they can't get up. But the word says, go to the valley, valley and begin to preach a prophetic word and call the people up and watch God through God's spirit organize the people and call them up. And they become the hope and the salvation of the nation. I believe with everything in me. And I tell Jonathan this all the time. I don't understand any other reason for me to be alive and walk, but to, to learn from the agency of poor people and impact the people around this country. And I believe with everything in me. That they, the 140 million poor and impacted people, are the very hope of this nation. It's the hope for us to speak truth. It is the hope for us to be transformative. Uh, and 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 for America, if America doesn't listen to their pain, if if we can't turn America's ears into eyes, if 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 don't transform our budgets and our and our direction and our policies. And if we don't address these interlocking injustices, the question is not can we get through another election. The question is can America even be America? But I believe that all of those people of every race, creed, color, and sexuality, like Langston Hughes years ago, are coming together. A remnant is coming together and saying, look, America, you may have never really been America to me, but we're going to swear this oath one more time that America will be. And we're going to fight for it to be so. We're going to push Republicans to stop blaming the poor. And we're going to push Democrats to stop running from the poor. And in doing so, we believe we're going to push America forward into a better place. Wow. Well, I can't thank both of you enough. Uh, really honored to have you on the show. Appreciate so much of the work you're you're doing. And I know it's going to be a busy season uh, for y'all, not just because of 2020, but because of uh, the, the, the pressing urgency of so many of the issues uh, you're working on and, and the urgency of so many people that you're working with. And so I uh, want to let you know that so many folks listening to this podcast are, are praying that y'all will be sustained and and uh, and blessed in, in, in what you're doing. Thank you so much. Bless you, brother. Forward together. Not one step back. Thank you so much for being with us. What a fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed hearing some of the inside thought and workings of Poor People's Campaign, how they view the Democratic primary. Really interesting to hear notes of disappointment from Reverend Barber there about what has happened since the forum that they hosted. And, you know, for folks to understand, and we talked about a bit in the interview, this is just an ongoing debate within the Democratic Party about the extent to which campaigns could, uh, winning campaigns could or should speak directly about issues of poverty. I I think what's so incredible, so interesting from a journalistic perspective about what the Poor People's Campaign has done is it's clearly shifted the way that some of these Democratic campaigns, many of them, feel they have to address these issues. Now, we'll see what the impact of of that is as we get deeper into this thing. We'll see how much pressure Poor People's Campaign, other allied groups keep on the Democratic campaigns. It's just it's a it's a thread to watch, to be sure. So I, I was really glad to be able to have both Reverend Dr. William Barber and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove on again, just because. This isn't the last we're going to be hearing from them. They are going to continue to be involved in the process. And so to at this stage of the game, this stage of the process, be able to have them on the show and give us some insight that we could then 
look for down the road is just invaluable. All right, that's all we have for this episode. We'll be back again the week after next, as promised, with a new guest, new topic of conversation. This show is going to be hosting folks from various perspectives. We're going to be talking about the Republican side. Believe me, there's going to be more than enough opportunity to talk about the Republican side and to be able to hear from folks who support President Trump about uh, how he's going to be reaching out to faith voters. And so there will be enough time for all the back and forth to hear many different perspectives so that by the time that voting gets around, you're able to see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. This show is one further step in that direction, and we'll be looking to take another step in just a couple weeks. Hey, this is Michael Weir. Thank you so much for joining. Stay in touch over the next couple of weeks on Twitter through iTunes, through the newsletter. We'll uh, talk to you again pretty soon. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the AND Campaign. Learn more about the AND Campaign by visiting andcampaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York, and our guests this week were Reverend Dr. William Barber and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. And I've been your host, Michael Ware. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.